This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. In March 2020, millions of children were sent home from school, and most of them would not be allowed to return until six months later. In January 2021, they were sent home again as the third lockdown began. Some of those kids were diligently working away on the tasks their teachers set them, supervised by parents on furlough. Some of them were struggling to concentrate as their parents jumped on and off their own Zoom calls and tried to share one device between siblings. Some of them disappeared from the system altogether. Inevitably, they would have fallen behind in their learning, but that may not be the worst of it. With me to talk about what happened to some of these kids and what we can do to stop it happening again is Anne Longfield, who was Children's Commissioner for England until February 2021 and is now the chair of the Commission on Young Lives. Anne, welcome to The Bunker. Hi, hello. Very pleased to be here. Let's remind ourselves what kids have been through during this pandemic. After the first lockdown, we had Freedom Day in early July, and people were urged to dine indoors to save the economy. Meanwhile, most kids have been out of school since early March and were not allowed to go back until September. This must have been frustrating for you. Yeah, a huge frustration. I mean, the roller coaster that kids had experienced during that time, the shock of school, something they'd grown up, something we'd all grown up as almost taking for granted would be there, suddenly closed for obvious reasons, and then not reopening until, as you say, September. So for me, one of the worst periods of that was the kind of May-June period where restaurants started to prepare to open, theme parks were opening, zoos were opening, pubs were opening, but actually schools were still shut. And at that point, really, all I could do was to say that, you know, kids need to be in school. They need to be in school for a whole range of things in addition to their learning, but they need to be in school. And words that I never thought I'd have to say, because I thought we all kind of took for granted that school was kind of a good thing, we'd all go. But suddenly that all seemed to crumble at that point. So by the time September arrived, kids had been out for some time. I mean, they were out over the whole period for 115 days on average, although obviously if they're in parts of the country where there are higher infection rates, that would have been worse. And during that time, there's just been such a different experience that kids have. Some clearly online the whole time, lots of Wi-Fi, lots of space, lots of desks, lots of garden, lots of parents around. And some of those have quite liked it. And then others where 
actually parents needed to carry on working because they needed that money. They might be sharing. I've heard of bedrooms with three other siblings. Sometimes there'd be just a couple of cracked phones between a whole family to work on. You know, there's no way that starts to even scratch the surface of being able to learn and actually just adds to that level of anxiety that we know meant that a lot of children were really having huge mental health problems as well. So an enormous roller coaster for kids during that time. They're back in school now. I think they're starting to rebuild and starting to have some confidence that the future might start to become a little more settled and pan out. But actually, for any child growing up with that in their life, that's going to be something that has an impact, I would say, for certainly years and decades, possibly some forever. What for you have been the lessons of this fiasco overall? I mean, it's, it, it wasn't as well just the first closure. It was the second set of closures as well. And the fact that we then had the self-isolation rules that meant that so many had to, were off school at the end of the summer term as well. The yeah. overall loss of days is even bigger than the school closures. What, what have we learnt? So I think there is, look, the, the, the whole issue about um, the pandemic, as in all issues, it's just shown a huge spotlight on inequalities and really exposed the fact that children grow up with really different experiences in their life and, of course, and different assets to draw on. And when there's a crisis, of course, some families have, have assets there, but an awful lot don't. So, so that is the biggest one that actually the kind of hidden children that were just getting by, if you like, before the pandemic were suddenly thrown into the spotlight. And I do think that more of us, more members of the public had reference point for, points for what it means to be vulnerable. It means, you know, you don't have a bedroom, you can't go out into your garden, you are sharing a broken phone, you might not have food, you know, things that suddenly were thrust onto people's TV screens. So that's one big lesson you know, you look at countries like Scandinavia, even New Zealand, where there's a lot of attention put on children's well-being. I was in Norway when the lockdown came and actually there they put children to the forefront and children were being considered every step of the way. The PM was out talking to children in the daily briefing in Norway within days. Whereas, you know, that's not been our tradition in this country. Children still aren't at the forefront. Children aren't thought of in that way. There isn't that sense that you have to put children first. But I think more generally, when you're looking at the absolute to and fro's and the roller coaster that children went through, there wasn't enough attention put on their needs first and foremost, as so often is the case, it, the attention was put on institutions. What? How can this function? How can that function? Important though it is. And actually their well-being wasn't put first and foremost. So planning, working together, putting children first, explaining, communicating, all of the things that there were at times, you know, huge lack of are the things that you need to be able to really ensure that kids get the help they need. And of course, the whole issue about catching up and building back from that takes that to a new stage, but nonetheless, all those things apply. I wanted to ask you about that because we know the Treasury refused to release more than a small portion of the money that Sir Kevin Collins, who's the Education Recovery Commissioner until he resigned over this issue, said that pupils needed to catch up. If we had had all that money, what would you like to have seen it being spent on? There were various ideas like longer school days, for example. What do you think kids most need? 
Mm. So, well, I think he got the scale right. You can always and should always talk about what the content is and tweet that till you get it where it is. But I think he got the scale right, which for me was the biggest kind of lesson in all this. So what would I have? Well, first of all, in terms of school day, I would open the schools after the kind of formal classroom. I think Sir Kevin were talking about half an hour to an hour. I'd actually really open them up as community buildings. And I know this might turn kind of, you know, teacher's blood a bit cold at this point, you know, in terms of what might be. But actually being able to open up some of those parts of the building that have the sports facilities, the arts facilities, the things that actually children need to get hold of in the evenings, after school and school holidays too. They're all around us in the community, but so often they're locked up. So I'm not advocating that teachers have to work longer hours here. I'm actually saying let's use those resources and get other people in, the sports coaches, the artists, you know, parents, volunteers, play workers, to actually be able to work with children outside that time. Because I think that not only will help them kind of recover in social terms and in learning, but also it will really help with their well-being and mental health because that is the thing which is frighteningly the case after the pandemic. Children's mental health has plummeted. And I think, you know, if you look across the population, you know, everyone is feeling, felt that at the end and still is, that kind of, you know, shock and isolation stress of the lockdown. But for children, you know, if you were, if you were three or four years old at the beginning of the first lockdown, actually you'd almost spent, you know, a third of your life in lockdown by the end of it. And that sense of not knowing if this will change. And of course, as adults, we often, you know, are often said, you know, will it ever end? What's what's a new normal going to be like? But imagine if you're a child saying that the latest figures show that one in six kids have potentially a mental health condition. And for teenagers, especially, especially girls, then that rockets up beyond one in four. So I think there's a huge job to rebuild children's resilience, to really get to the roots of what has been causing anxieties, to provide that support and just those spaces for kids to be able to socialize, relax and have fun essentially. There are, of course, you know, serious academic catch-ups that need to be in place and schools are working hard of the, on those. There is a focus on tutoring within there. But I think that this is something which is, yes, about academic catch-up, but also much wider than this. Kids have to learn to be kids again and really be able to have those places where they can have fun and flourish. But there is a bigger issue here, which goes back to the beginning, you know, the numbers of kids that were not having a great experience in the education system, weren't getting the support they needed before the pandemic. And there's about 20% of kids that leave now at 16 without the kind of level of qualification that they need to be able to even take part in some apprenticeships and the like. And that's a system that we accept as normal. We accept as normal that there are kids that are caring for their own relatives, their own parents, which, you know, they're doing because they love their family, but they don't often get support. And real concerns about those children before the pandemic, as I say, with high levels of mental health concern. So it needs to be a big wake up call to us that we've seen what happens for those kids that don't have the support they need before the pandemic. We need to make sure that when we do rebuild, 
that actually that is there for them. And of course, we've got now an added emphasis on leveling up. My argument is that we're never going to be able to level up if we don't get the basics right for kids. And that's not just the kids that have the support. It's the kids that at the moment are falling off that radar, falling through the cracks and need that springboard to catch up, essentially, and get ahead in terms of what they could achieve and experience in life. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So you've set up a new commission on young lives, which is focused on those kids who, for whom things went very wrong during the pandemic. And not just because of the pandemic, this, these problems were emerging already. Tell us about them and what you're investigating at the moment. Well, for me, you know, as Children's Commissioner, I, I, I hope I shone a light on, you know, where kids are vulnerable and, and, and where they're falling through the cracks and what kind of help they need. But the group that I really felt were the ones at highest risk were those that had often got to teenage years that were falling out of school, that were becoming prey to those who wanted to exploit them, often getting into violence and experiencing violence themselves, and some ended up in the criminal justice system. When you talk to these kids who have gone through some of the most terrible experiences in their teens that we would all hope that none of us would ever go through in our lives, there's almost a blueprint that comes around of, you know, how it got to this. I'd often say to kids, how did we end up here? You know, what was it? And from the start, they'll talk about, well, you know, parents, there were a lot of problems. My mum had a serious addiction. There were various mental health difficulties, very often domestic violence in the home, not being able to build relationships and feeling that they started school kind of behind, feeling that school really wasn't for them, often excluded, often going missing and really falling out of sight. Because at that point, when you're away from the structures of school, when you haven't got those relationships with kind of trusted adults, then if there's people that are looking for vulnerable kids that are going to want to exploit them, they'll find them. And that includes those kids that are in such serious risk, they're taken into care. So I really wanted to spend some time and look in detail at how we found solutions to help these kids. We're talking about, uh, well, there were 15 thousand children who were referred into care because there were concerns about gangs. And that was a 4% rise just before COVID from the year before. We know there's 27,000, 30,000 kids who are in or around gangs. About a third of those it's thought, are actually girls. And they have huge vulnerabilities around sexual abuse, 
and assault. There's also many siblings that are around that group. And when they fall into that really difficult situation, when they find themselves in and around gangs, and they do that because they're targeted, because they're showered with affection and asked to become part of this group, it then all turns very, very bad. They are often systematically robbed. They then have what they call a debt bond. Essentially, they're then told because they've lost the phone, because they've left the drugs, they owe the gang and they then have to work constantly to pay them back. But the level of violence, the level of threat that they're under um, is something which is almost unspeakable. So I wanted to really do everything I could to really help those children find better solutions, to prevent them falling into that situation, to work with organisations that are doing very good things, often quite small charities, doing really excellent work on the ground. But it is small. It is quite piecemeal. It is often short term. But to really look at how services can change and how services can work with communities to prevent those children falling into that level of risk, which is about joining things up. It's about having much more awareness of these children and really having the kind of support package in place to help those kids. It's going to spend a year looking at what the issues are for families. How can we help children in care not fall into violence or the criminal justice system? How to keep kids in school? Because we know if they're excluded, they're at higher risk. What does it mean around gangs, girls in gangs as well? What about tech? You know, there's a long list, but we're going to look at this in some depth over the next year and report both as we go along, but finally as well with proposals of what a local and national system would look like if you're really going to help these kids, not only protect them from harm, but also give them that springboard I talk about to be really able to get on in life not have the diminished life chances that they have at the moment. Just tell us a bit about County Lines gangs, because not everybody will know how they work and why you know they, they've always existed to a certain extent, I imagine. But in the last few years, they've become much more common. Where in the country is this happening? And how are they organised? Yeah, well, it's interesting because it's about six years ago since I was first asked what I thought about county lines. We started to talk about it and few people started to talk about it, but it wasn't widespread. Whereas now, actually, the term, at least, virtually everyone knows because we hear it in the news, we hear it reported. Essentially, the county line is the phone that's used. It's a phone line that's used between those that are wishing to sell the drugs, the gangs, and those that wish to purchase it. And what those groups do is they use children as the commodity of choice to deliver the drugs to those that are ordering them. And those will be, you know, there's all different status of those involved, but essentially the the bottom run is runners who used to be about start about 12. Now I'm told start about 10. What started as an urban kind of business model to sell drugs out from a city centre now is in every police force of the in the country. Even the mildest country areas will have some kind of in route from county lines. And children are commodities in this. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And my fear is we make it too easy for the gangs. You know, and COVID did give them a strong hand in this. Kids are more vulnerable. 
and the gangs are more sophisticated, more brutal as they go on. There is now a county line centre, the National Crime Agency are now working on this. There are some violence reduction units around the country, all of these doing good stuff. But actually, where there's a crack in that coordination, where these kids are falling out, where there isn't the coordination and support needed, that's where those are trying to get to those kids will find them. And once they're in the criminal justice system, if these kids end up there, what happens to them? Because we know that the justice system at the moment has been under huge pressure with trials postponed and delayed due to COVID and barristers quitting the job. Has that had an effect on the children's justice system as well? It has. And um, I suppose the, the thing to say about most of these kids as well is they're not known to the authorities. So until the crisis happens, until the dreadful headline happens most of them aren't known but some will be caught some will be in the criminal justice system for those that are actually in custody there's a much lower number of kids in custody than they were many years ago is the numbers have dropped from about 3000 right down to 7 or 800 but the profile of violence that those those children experience that are in there is much much higher we saw kids during that time that were locked up for long long periods of day 22 23 hours we know that also there would have been delay in making decisions about kids that were in there but essentially they were locked up and very strong lockdown often without education for that period of time now what we know is that when kids leave custody actually the majority reoffend a large portion of them are back inside so that's something which really needs much more attention. Actually, the Commission on Young Lives is being hosted by and backed by a charity called Oasis. And Oasis have won the contract for, are going to be running the first, what they're calling a secure school, which is a new model of criminal justice for children. It sees itself much more as a children home than a prison, much more as an education that's secure rather than the usual security-led regime that will also have a, a restore a network that will uh, work with kids when they leave custody to give them the support they need not to come back in. So models like that are really, really valuable and really, I hope, open the door to what could be. Because at the moment, for those kids that are coming out in, each one of their stories tells us they could have been avoided. But that's the part that's not happening. One of the most frustrating things in this country is that these things are going on. And yet what we hear about in the national media and in the press in particular is a stream of consumer focused journalism. You know, for months over this summer, all the talk was, can I go abroad? What do I need to do? And we don't hear, obviously, it's difficult to do this reporting because these are kids who do not, who fall out of the system and do not want to be found. It is really hard reporting, but it doesn't get done, does it? Is anybody out there doing this kind of, covering this kind of thing? And exposing what's going on? Well, I think there is much more than there was. And certainly when I went into the role of Children's Commissioner, I felt that there wasn't the kind of consistent reporting on some of these issues that they deserve. Children going into care, we know about that, but we know very little about actually what happens there or indeed what happens to them throughout their life. There's much more of that now, I think. And there's much more understanding that the experiences of these kids is something that should be much more of a priority. And I think actually during the pandemic, 
people not only felt that actually they had more reference points for what it meant to be leading a difficult life, but actually I think people wanted to come together to do something to remedy that, whether that was providing food, whether that was volunteering, whether that was delivering parcels, whatever. I think there was a sense from the community that actually they wanted all kids to have a decent chance in life and wanted to play their part in getting that. And I do think that that remains. I think that actually if government put children centre stage, if there was much more of a kind of visible concern in the media about not only when it gets to crisis point, but actually that wider concern around children's lives, then actually the public would be behind them. I do think that. There's been some fantastic reporting on some children over of the pandemic. There's been some great reporting and consistent reporting about schools and investigative reporting too. But we're noticing when things go wrong at the moment and a hit crisis. I'd like us really to get ahead of that and really focus on when things go well for children against the odds and how that can happen and tell those stories of how children and their families' lives has really been turned around and how they're flourishing. So there's a job to be done. And I know looking at Scandinavian countries that not everything at all is perfect, but there is this sense that as a community, they've all decided actually that we've got to invest in our kids. And I think the general public here want that, but I think our politicians yet haven't got to that point. And thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you can help us to reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends or tweet it to them with the hashtag BunkerUp. Get them to send us their feedback. It's really useful. If you enjoy The Bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Roz Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.